Oftentimes, it's better to start with creativity to help you learn the facts. Life is too short to learn a, a list of a thousand rando words. From the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In with your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, senior lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford, and I'm with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, Dean of the Graduate School of Education. And I am actually not physically with Dan. We are doing our radio show during COVID-19 social distancing. So we are all in our separate places. And our guest today will also be Zooming in. So Denise, high above the Hollywood Hills Pope. Isn't that where you're, (laughs) you're sort of overlooking all of Los Angeles and no, I am not. I am in my home close to Stanford right now. I am not in the Hollywood Hills. I'd like to be uh, just away, right, with a nice view, but right. no, no. No, I'm, I'm sort of in a closet and there's an exercise bike with a <laughs> towel and, you know, a dirty shirt on it next to me. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. How are you doing, Dan? I'm good. Yeah. I'm good. yeah. I, yeah. I, I know it's the time of COVID, but can you handle a pop quiz? Uh, true, false, multiple choice, open answer. Open answer. Yes, I can handle it. All right, here we go. I have been working with several independent schools around the country and uh, and other schools. We've got some charter schools, et cetera. And what do you think the fastest growing position, sort of administration position? Oh, 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 I know, I know, I know, I know. It, It has to be elementary school teachers that are immune to coronavirus. <laughs> this is the number one position people are searching oh, for. Oh, yes. And, and they get paid billions of dollars to come in. Um, okay. No, that is, that is incorrect. It would be great, but that is not correct. So do you have a, a second guess? Mental health. That's actually a good guess. Um, and there is a newfound prominence on finding people with mental health experience, whether you're a clinician or a school counselor or a school psychologist or psychiatrist. So there is there is um, added emphasis on that right now. But actually, and this this happened before COVID nineteen and before actually um, all of the uh, issues that we've seen with what we have been calling the second pandemic on the show, which has been around for a while, which is issues of race and social justice. The fastest growing job at many independent schools and charter schools is uh, chief of institutional equity, diversity, and inclusion. It might have a different title. I have right. a friend of mine right. is Dean of Equity Education, Chief Inclusion Officer is another title. But yeah, that's actually the fastest uh, growing job. We why, also why see, do you think? well, do you think? I, I think because people have long been recognizing and think particularly in independent schools, which, which tend to be um, ca- historically catering to a more privileged population and historically therefore white um, as they're trying to get more diverse and they include more diverse students from different socioeconomic status, from different ethnicities of of, of all different kinds, they realize that they aren't really serving them all that well and need to make everybody feel included in the community, the the, the families, not just the kids, the families, the educators of color, et cetera. So it's, uh, I think, a good thing that people have realized this. What is unfortunate is if everything gets thrown to that person then, right? That's, so that, a, that's this, a huge job. You're in charge no, of that, inclusion. It seems like a very hard job. You know, it's a single person is supposed to change institutional culture, change people's behaviors, resolve conflict. Uh, 
help people learn things they never realize. Uh, this seems very hard. And to help us think about this, we're very fortunate to have Eric Abrams. He's the chief inclusion officer at the Graduate School of Education. He's a Stanford alum. And after his time as a undergraduate, he worked in the admissions office. So he has really seen many, many different sides of access, inclusion, equity. So welcome, Eric. Thank you for having me, Dan and Denise. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. So get, given that this is a hard job, right, where you, basically your job is to m just make everything better, you know, what, and in a hard situation, uh, an important situation, uh, why, why did you become a chief inclusion officer? Well, the first thing that comes to mind, Dan, is as you describe how hard my job is, I want to both ask for more money and uh, <laughs> update my resume. Yes. Um, you go, Eric. <laughs> The job is challenging, but it's also incredibly rewarding. And I've, my entire career has been spent in higher education, as you both know. And I was fortunate to have the opportunity to a few years ago to shift my emphasis from admissions with an eye on diversity to diversity and inclusion full time. And I wanted to do it largely because I think that how people conceptualize diversity and inclusion, in my mind, is incorrect. We've all been in the situation, or I think many of us have been in the situation where someone says there's this great uh, diversity talk or I'm going to watch this diversity video and somebody else who's part of the conversation either says or thinks, well, the brown people and the gay people and the women will have a good time at that, but it's not for me. And often I think those are some of the people who can benefit the most from the conversation. So I really want to look at this in terms of, of inclusion. How do we make our, our campuses, our schools, our classrooms, welcoming places where everyone can be their full and best selves? Given the culture wars that are going on right now, how does that work? One phrase I keep in my mind a lot, whether I say it out loud, is my job is not to tell people how to think. I'm not trying to change minds. I'm not trying to change hearts. I do think my job is to tell people to think. I want people to really be conscious of the actions that they have, whether it's peer-to-peer, -peer, whether it's a student speaking to a teacher or a professor, or a professor speaking to a student, or a teacher speaking to a student. I think it's really intentional, it's really important for us to be intentional about these conversations and not just let things fall by the wayside. I want to go back more uh, psychological profile. Why, why did you choose to do this? There's, um, a, there's a lot of ways you could have done social good or made, or made lots of money. Absolutely. Well, I don't know about the made lots of money part. Well, you're, not gonna, you're not getting a raise. So <laughs> I can't be your motivation. Oh, oh. <laughs> you're so mean, Dan. One phrase that people have used in academia forever is, is research is me search, right? I'm not a researcher, but I, I do this work because it's, it's, I very clearly remember what it felt like to be uh, a freshman at Stanford. And, and on my first day of freshman orientation, feeling like I was really hot stuff. You know, as, as a high school student, I was not cool. I wasn't smooth when I was trying to flirt with people. Um, I wasn't good at sports, but I was smarter than you, damn it. Um, and I went to an inner city high school in Chicago, and I had never heard of things like the achievement gap. I had the highest SAT score at my high school by 200 points. So I thought I was a genius. <laughs> and then I got to my, my freshman dorm, and my, literally the first thing my roommate said to me after our parents left the room was, what was your SAT score? I oh remember. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so that's crazy. It was 1060. 
And I was very proud of that. And I kind of looked at him like, how dare you step to me with a question like that? And he laughed and said, you got in just because you're black. <gasps> and so I spent that night kind of creeping around the dorm and listening to conversations about test scores. And it became clear that I was like a standard deviation away from everybody. Uh, and on the second day of or new student orientation, I tried to leave. And being fairly unsophisticated about how colleges work, I went to the admissions office. I saw a receptionist. I walked to her. I walked up to her and I said, hi, I'm Eric Abrams, freshman from Chicago. I'm ghost. And she looks at me and says, pardon me, son? And I heard my grandmother's voice say, be careful about using slang about around white people. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry, I'm leaving. And she asked me to sit down. And a few moments later, the man who was then the Dean of Admissions, Fred Hargadon, comes out of his office and he said, words I'll never forget. He said, Mr. Abrams, I understand you have a problem with how I do my job. I was shocked. I didn't even, you know, I hardly knew who this man was. How do I have a problem with that? He told me to come with him. And we spent the next 45 minutes going over my application line by line. And he ended the conversation by saying, look, we didn't admit you because you're black, Eric. We didn't admit you because we need more kids from Chicago. We didn't admit you because your family doesn't have a lot of money. I admitted you because I expect you to leave Stanford a better place in four years than it is right now. And I walked out of that conversation feeling 10 feet tall and bulletproof and also feeling like I wanted to have that same impact on another student at some point in my life. Wow. I don't know that I ever have, but that's why I got into this job. Wow, wow. This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We are speaking with Eric Abrams, who is the Chief Inclusion Officer at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. And Eric, that story is so powerful. I, I love it. I love that the Dean of Admissions make, made you feel you know, 10 feet tall and, and bulletproof. And do you, do you do this with School of Ed uh, uh, admits? I mean, do you, how, do you, how do you make them feel the way that he made you feel? Because they're not all going to come into your office. I, I have tried to do that almost literally with every student I've come into contact with in my career, one way or another. I think certainly at places like Stanford, even the students you know, who have perfect academic records have a little bit of insecurity when they show up and they're surrounded by thousands of other people who have perfect academic records. I kind of want to tell people, and it's one thing I haven't said out loud, but I find myself thinking during orientation, you know what? Half of you are going to graduate in the bottom half of your class. And that's okay, right? By definition, this group of people who've never been in the bottom half of anything. Um, I, I, I want to work very hard to make, make the GSE, and honestly, by extension, um, Stanford as a whole, a place, as I said earlier, where everyone can be their full and best selves. And that includes creating space, whether that's my office or, or walking around campus or, or over Zoom, where students can actually talk about their, their insecurities and some of their fears and some of the things they're worried about. So, Eric, uh, one of... Stanford's probably changed since you were here. It, it's been very explicit in getting a, a, a well-rounded student body with representation, you know, that's uh, largely proportional to California and the United States. Are there new challenges that if, now that we have such a, a rich mix of students, or is it just the old challenges, just more of them? No, I think there are, there are, the old challenges still exist, and there are a host of new challenges, great and small. Uh, and I want to share an anecdote about one of the small new challenges. And this is, this is not a big one, but it does exist. 
Um, I've had conversations with with a number of colleagues on campus, uh, African-American colleagues, one uh, who actually just left the university, Harry Elam, who's going to be the new president of Occidental College, about one thing that we've lost in the last couple of decades. Um, when I was a freshman at Stanford, they told us that there were 83 African-American undergrads, not, not freshmen, undergrads, the entire what? undergraduate population. Oh my but gosh, when you that's saw, crazy. When you saw another black person, student, faculty, or staff, you darn near gave them a hug. Right, right. You notice them. You acknowledge them. You were the 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 colloquial phrase that people use to describe that is the nod. Right. And you've probably noticed if you're walking, you know, somewhere with an African American colleague, they might make make eye contact with somebody else who's black and give a little nod. Right. One of the challenges that in the last couple of years, as the university has become more diverse, the nod has gone away. And for some of us who are older, it is, it is astounding that like a freshman would make, a young person would make eye contact and just keep going about their business without doing anything else. Now that's a small thing, and I think it actually speaks to their being critical mass, but it is, it is a challenge for some of us who've been around for a while. This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We are talking with Eric Abrams, who's the Chief Inclusion Officer at Stanford Graduate School of Education. And um, I heard Dan say something that resonated with me, that you are sort of part HR, part admin, part conflict resolution person. You're trying to make everyone feel comfortable, but there's other parts of your job that are really hard. I mean, so making everyone comfortable is hard, but, you know, how do you, how do you handle it when, there is like an issue between let's say student to student or student and professor or a grave misunderstanding has been had. What, what, what do you do? I, I, I earlier mentioned my, my grandmother. I have the incredible privilege of coming from a family with, with incredibly strong women. Um, and one of the things that my grandmother always said is that you have two ears and one mouth, which one should you lose, use more? Mm. listening is incredibly important and I try to listen to you know if there's any kind of conflict when there's an issue that comes up I try to listen to people on both sides and I think it's important to try to figure out are there ways that we can get to yes well sometimes there aren't and goodness knows we've seen situations in the last couple of years on campus where you know students leave um, with with some anger or some resentment about a situation that they feel that wasn't solved I don't want to present myself as someone who has all the answers and can solve every problem. But I do think that if we, we become somewhat graceful about dealing with these issues, and I'm, I'm not talking about grace like Catholic school grace, I'm talking about grace like a ballerina. We all make mistakes. It's completely impossible for any of us to understand every single nuance of every culture, every faith, every sexual orientation, every ability status that exists in the world. But if we make a mistake, if we face that mistake with grace and, and we learn how to apologize for real, oh my goodness, Denise, I'm sorry that I hurt you, as opposed to, I'm sorry if anyone out there was offended. I also think it's important to teach people how to accept the apology. One of the things that really frustrates me about the current zeitgeist, especially on campus, is, is what's called cancel culture, right? People make a mistake and then they're immediately you know, that's it. Well, aren't we a university? Aren't we a place where we're supposed to learn? We're, we're in many ways, we're supposed to make mistakes. And it ought to be okay to make a mistake and have somebody call you on it and for you say, oh my gosh, I can't believe I hurt you like that. Help me understand more about it. That's, well, that's know, really my ultimate goal. Yeah, so, you know, this is something I've had to work on, uh, the listening. 
Because my natural tendency when people come forward with concerns or complaints or critiques is to talk about everything I'm doing, you know, that's good, as opposed to actually listening. So this is a hard, a hard task, right? Because I, I want to I defend myself. I've, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, right? And, and so I just made this one mistake, but geez, I've done all these things. And I, I'm guessing, I'm learning that this is the wrong response. I, I think we're all learning that. And this is probably way too much information, but some of the best things that I learned about that particular process actually came through couples counseling with my wife. We've been married for 26 years. It's not like we're falling apart. But learning those types of listening skills and learning to be able to say, when, when somebody is telling you something that's wrong and you're thinking, but, 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 but I made dinner last night and I clean the dishes and I do the laundry, when what you ought to actually be sitting there saying, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I understand why that's frustrating. It doesn't mean you have to agree, but you have to try to put yourself in the other person's one, I don't say you personally. But no, no, you're right. I, I, in, in my relationships, I always want to win. That's the goal, right? This is, yeah. Eric, if you've been listening to the show, you will notice that is a trend with Dan about winning. <laughs> so this is good. Keep going. Keep it is, going. It is, in, in, in my experience, um, having worked with Dan for more than three years now, it's not just limited to the show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but he's getting better at listening and empathizing. So, so tell me how you feel about that, Eric. <laughs> Good and, job. And aren't we all, I mean, nobody ever becomes perfect at this. I doubt that Mother Teresa was perfect at this. This is a journey. This is something that we learn. And I think that if we can put conversations about equity, diversity, and inclusion in the category of lifelong learning, we'll all be much better off. So, okay, here's a worry that I have because on social media right now, there's a bunch of things about how to be a good ally, how to be um, an ally to uh, people of color, uh, LGBTQ+, plus, et cetera. And um, there's all these rules that are coming out on social media to the point where I'm sort of afraid to say anything. Like you, you just start to worry that you're going to offend someone all the time. And I worry that this is shutting down conversation that it's doing the exact opposite of what should be happening, which is really fostering conversation. What's your, what's your take on that? I, you know, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I dare say that I, if I've not hadn't been guilty of it, I've certainly witnessed it. I've certainly witnessed, witnessed, witnessed it re recently. Uh, after the murder of George Floyd, we had a kind of a school-wide Zoom meeting where a bunch of us talked about, about these issues. And a faculty colleague, um, came back out of one of the breakout sessions with her, her background, just a, a listing of names of people who had been murdered by police in the last few years. And I burst into tears. Um, and I later spoke with her about that. It was like, you know, if, you, if you're doing that, you might want to give people some warning. I wasn't trying to stifle her. I wasn't trying to stifle her conversation, but the effect it had on me was, was really powerful. And I know that not only do I know she was trying to be an ally, I know that she is an ally. I don't know that there is a perfect way to be an ally, but I think it really starts with something that, that, that Dan mentioned. It starts with empathy and it starts with listening. This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We will have more with Eric Abrams, who's the Chief Inclusion Officer, talking about safe spaces on college campuses next on SiriusXM. This is Schools In. I'm not an expert at this. Okay. I'm more expert than you. When you can't read in American society, you are really left out. With Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. From the campus of Stanford University.
Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking today with Eric Abrams, who is the Chief Inclusion Officer at Stanford Graduate School of Education. We are all talking by Zoom today. So, Eric, uh, I think I want to. We're going to ask you a series of hard questions, and you're going to help us think about them, right? And and these are sort of concrete questions about how to think, so or what to do. So, Denise, you get to go first. Well, I can tell you, as as a professor, I I worry about how to make my classroom a safe space, right? There's, I'm, I am I supposed to give trigger alerts? How do I know who's going to be triggered by what? Um, and I talk about some really controversial issues in my courses, my curriculum course. We talk about religious orthodoxy. We talk about evolution and things that might be offensive, potentially offensive to some people. So help me. How can I make my classroom a safe space? I don't think it's possible to make a space that's going to be safe in terms of nobody ever being hurt, nobody having their feelings hurt, or or perhaps being offended by something that happens. In terms of trigger warnings, it's something that, at the risk of sounding neoconservative, it's not something that I'm really a fan of. I think it makes sense to do at the beginning of the term or maybe have in the syllabus a, a sentence or two about, you may come into contact with ideas in this course that you don't like, but we're all here to support each other, something along those lines. But I don't think it makes sense to stifle discussion. Um, I don't think it makes sense to stifle ideas, even ideas that we don't like. I think that we need to have space to have you know, intense conversations on campus. So one, one that immediately comes to mind for me uh, that's, that's on the ballot this fall in California is affirmative action. We need to be able to talk about the pros and cons of affirmative action programs without immediately saying that somebody's a racist or somebody's, you know, uh, uh, Antifa terrorist because they have ideas that we disagree with. How do we think about Black Lives Matter relative to other unfairly treated groups, say immigrants? I go back to the the analogy that that many, many, many people have have made about the difference between, say, Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. You know, of course, all lives matter. Of course. But all lives can't matter unless Black Lives Matter. If Black Lives don't matter, then all lives don't matter, right? I think that the, the Black Lives Movement is incredibly important, and it's really focusing our society on anti-Black racism in a way that, that I haven't seen certainly since my, my extremely young childhood. That should not exclude conversations about immigrants or the, the you know, awful way that we are treating uh, children and families at the border or, or sexism or homophobia or discrimination against people of faith that we see. Um, all of these things matter. But here's one. I am a parent uh, maybe who lives in a, a fairly homogenous neighborhood listening to this show. Uh, and I want to teach my children to be not just uh, not racist, but anti-racist. And maybe you can explain a little bit about that term. Uh, how do I do it? To get to the second part of your question, the difference between being not racist and being anti-racist, in my mind, is about being an active participant against racism. It's not a, oh, I'm not a racist because I'm not in the Ku Klux Klan. Well, that's great. I appreciate the fact that you're not in the Klan, but what have you done to fight racism today? And that doesn't mean that you necessarily had to be marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge with John Lewis. It does mean that hopefully you've taken some steps in your, your personal and your professional and your social lives to make sure these circles are, are inclusive. For parents who live in in really homogenous neighborhoods, the conversation that I would really hope that you would have with your children, certainly early in grade school, third, fourth, fifth grade, is just to ask, 
have you noticed our neighborhood? It's pretty homogenous. What do you think about that? You know, when we watch TV, there are people from all different ethnicities. But when we walk down the street, when we go to our school, it's not. Kids, what do you think about that? One expressly, hugely important anti-racist choice that I think parents can make is to ask forcefully at their schools, how many black teachers do we have? How many Latinx teachers do we have? And if the answer is none, why not? And what can we do to change that? This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Erica Abrams, Chief Inclusion Officer, talking about tips and strategies for parents and educators. Dan, I think you are up with the next question. How do you talk to your kids about race? And is this like the birds and the bees? You know, there's a moment where, uh, so for example, my my son is uh, Native American. And at one point, I started to have a conversation with him about being Native American. And uh, he was too young. He sort of like didn't quite understand that there was a thing called race. Yeah, one, one concept that I, I, I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I, I wish I had a really pithy name for it, but I don't, is, is pointing out positive examples. If your, your child sees you reading something or, or they see you watching CNN, you could say something like, geez, this Don Lemon guy is really smart. I don't agree with everything he says, but he's smart. You know, to, to, to actually actively find positive examples of people who look different than you, but are behaving in, in intelligent and thoughtful ways. I like when you use that sort of, I don't agree with him, but I think he's making a good point or he's, he's smart. Um, what happens when you don't agree with them and, you know, you don't even know what to say. You're going to sound mean. You're going to sound uh, like you're putting them down or condescending, but, but you really don't want that idea to be left out there in the ether. W- what do you do? I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure that I'm, I'm understanding your qu- question quite correctly, Denise, but what immediately comes to mind is something that, 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 Former President Obama talked about, right, the the soft bigotry of low expectations. We ought to be able to say that, like, you know, I really don't like this guy's ideas and I don't think they're very good. And, and, you know, they can look different. You it's it's that's fine, too. I think that the idea is that we demonstrate to our children and to the people around us that we're going to treat everyone the same. And that might mean calling out somebody that we think is stupid from a different ethnicity. It's sort of like you know, well, we can all agree to disagree. I think there are some things that, that for most people are, are a little bit beyond the pale. It's, it's you know, the, the president talked about the Charlottesville marchers and said there were fine people on both sides. No, no, there weren't fine people on both sides. There were horrible racist people on one side and people trying to protest that racism on another side. I think that happens in our society. And I think it's okay to say to your children, to your families, hey, this is really bad. Dan, you need to pay Eric more. Based on everything that I've heard on the show today, this guy's really good. He's made some excellent points. He's very good. You, you don't realize how much he gets paid already. <laughs> so we're, we're looking at his image and he's, he's on the shores of Lake Geneva. And... <laughs> okay. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree on that one. Uh, I think we are going to agree to disagree on that one, Dan. Um, thank you, Eric. Thank you so much for being here and really handling a tough conversation. And thank you to all the listeners for listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app, 
on iTunes and SoundCloud. From the campus of Stanford University, this has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope on Sirius XM Business Radio. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online or with the Sirius XM app.